Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would feed us and train us and build us up, that the spirit would be active in our minds and our hearts as we give attention to your word preached. Lord, we thank you for your provision. We pray that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This passage speaks of suffering. Suffering. Do you ever willingly choose to suffer? Do you ever willingly choose to suffer? Would you ever choose to suffer when two options are held before you, suffering or comfort, right? When you have those two options before you, which, which are you going to choose? Difficulty or ease, right? It goes, against, it goes against our own sense of self-preservation to choose suffering. A few years ago, I read a biography of a missionary uh, early American missionary named Adoniram Judson. He was the first, first American foreign missionary who went to the basically untouched land of Burma. Uh, I think it's Myanmar. Am I saying that right today? It's not Burma anymore. But he went to Burma in the early part of the 1800s and like, like all missionaries, they leave with a whole ton of idealism when they go. And, and they have to because that's faith, right? It's faith to, to, um, to go. It's faith to have uh, visions of the gospel, you know, changing hearts and being poured out. And even though he was an idealist, he knew he would suffer. And he chose to suffer. He chose to go leave the comforts of this country and go to Burma. Just as he was coming to terms with this call to the foreign field, he was offered a cushy job as an assistant pastor in, of all places, Park Street Church in Boston, which is still around and is still big and still influential. And his parents were delighted at the prospect that he would, he would be the assistant pastor at Park Street Church in Boston. In his mind, it was, though, a choice between suffering and comfort, right? And given the state of the world and technology, there was a wide gap in this choice that probably doesn't exist today, right? The choice of going to un, undeveloped land overseas in a wooden vessel, Uh, is a far cry from staying around in in Boston at a tall steeple church. 
around this, uh, around this time where he's grappling with this call and the call to the church, he met the woman who had become his wife. Adoniram wrote the following to her father before he asked for her hand in marriage. He said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring and to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardship and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps to a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. You see, we see that Adoniram Judson knew to a certain extent that he, what he was choosing for himself and his wife, and he knew why he was doing it, right? He knew he was choosing suffering, but he knew he was doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ and for his Savior. Now, the Apostle Paul did the same thing, right? Paul rejoiced in his suffering. The Apostle Paul, as we read here in our passage this morning in Colossians, also rejoiced in sufferings. What sort of sufferings? Well, we read what he went through in 2 Corinthians, right? How many times have we heard this passage? And it, it shocks us every time. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments. I mean, if it stopped there, we'd be like, whoa. Imprisonments for the gospel. He went to jail because he preached the gospel. But it goes on from there. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's no joke. Right, 39 lashes put a man near death. He went through that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Right, shipwrecked, floating around in the ocean, night and a day. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, robbers, my countrymen, Gentiles, cities, wilderness, the sea, and false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak with, without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness, he says. And remember that Paul is writing this letter while imprisoned in Rome. He's suffering as he's writing that, as he's reflecting. 
At the very end of Acts, the last two verses, we read this about his imprisonment. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So it seems that the Apostle Paul was under guard, unable to leave uh, the house that he was renting, but free to have visitors. He was under some sort of Roman you know, house arrest. Epaphras, who um, it seems was the pastor or an elder of the, the church in Colossae, was one of those visitors who came to Paul. So Paul wrote this letter to the church of the Colossians to address some of the problems that Epaphras brought to him. But Paul's freedom is gone. We also know that not just the Apostle Paul, but Jesus himself willingly suffered. He chose suffering. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to say um, that he willingly suffered, right? What, What has he ever done that was not willingly done? Um, In Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus is described as the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus endured the cross willingly. Isaiah 53 speaks of Jesus saying, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's a certain kind of suffering too, isn't it? When men hide their faces from you. Passage goes on, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. That is willingly suffering. There he stood before the crushing blow of his father and he submitted himself to that wrath, conforming his will to the will of his father. He laid down his life for the sheep and suffered that humiliation of the cross, the scorn of men, and the very wrath of God. The apostle apostle Paul's suffering also, and even Jesus' own suffering is just a portion of the larger suffering of the church. It's just a portion of it. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in, in this passage. He says that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake, and in his flesh he does his share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The point I want to draw out of this first is this. Paul sees his sufferings as part of his share of sufferings. It seems he is saying there is a share of suffering that we must suffer. He has his portion. What I believe he is saying is this. As Jesus went, so will we also go. Right? As Jesus suffered, why would we expect that those who follow him would follow in any different way? They would follow in his suffering. This is what Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew 10. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. You'll be hated. 
But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. The disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. In other words, if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for you. And that's the sufferings. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So the Apostle Paul in our passage in Colossians is echoing Jesus' words. Jesus suffered. Why would we expect that we would not suffer? Jesus suffered and laid out a pattern of faithfulness. Why would we expect that faithfulness in the 20th century would be easy and cushy? Jesus suffered. Think about it. The Son of God. He with the power of legions of angels suffered willingly. 1 Peter 2, 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, again, this is, this is all kind of abstract. Um, what do I mean by suffering? What will our suffering look like? Will it... Will it look like Adoniram Judson's? Well, um, we'll come to those things in a minute, but I, I want to address something else in this text which teaches us something very important. It's this. The Apostle Paul says that his suffering is doing, is his, doing his share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Right? To fill up what lacked in all those sufferings of Jesus that are so dense and so important and so fundamental to the Christian faith. What were Christ's afflictions and what did they accomplish? Um, I think we can answer that without any question. The suffering he went through in this life, particularly the cross, that's what his suffering was. That is precisely what Paul has just mentioned previously in this passage. It was the cross which paid the penalty for our sins. It was the cross which made peace between God and man. It was the cross that earned heaven for us. It was the cross that redeemed his people. And as the apostle Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And in Hebrews, we read about the perfection of Christ's afflictions on the cross for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's what he did on the cross. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. Those who are sanctified. I mean, these are very, these sufferings are very um, potent. They're, they're um, very effective afflictions. They perfect his people. That's how dense and important those afflictions are, which leads us to the next question. How in the world could something so dense be lacking something? Right? How in the world could there be something lacking in Christ's afflictions then, like this passage says? Paul says that he was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Some say that Christ's afflictions were insufficient to expiate, to remove from us all our sins or to merit our redemption. 
They paid, Christ's afflictions paid, say, 99% of the, of the way, and we have to make up the last 1%. The Roman Catholics believe that some sort of merit must be added on top of what Christ earned. So they offer a menu of merits, right? Indulgences, pilgrimages, penance, masses, praying to saints, receiving from that treasury of merit that those saints have built up. And, and we, we don't see that in scripture because of the verses that I read earlier. Christ's afflictions merit heaven for his people. It perfects those who are being sanctified. And there's no gap to be called, right, <laughs> with our own merit. So what is, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, here's what, what John Calvin said. He said, as Christ has suffered once in his own person, so he suffers daily in his members. That's, that's us, the members of his body, his people. So he suffered once in his own person, but daily he suffers in us. And in this way, there are filled up those sufferings which the Father has appointed for his body by his decree. In other words, God has appointed suffering for his body. The church, his people, they follow the sufferings of the Son of God. Here's a fuller explanation and one that I like from John Piper. He says this, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. Okay, God intends for the afflictions of Christ, his sufferings, to be presented to the world, imaged forth to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we offer, offer the Christ of the cross to people, they see the Christ of the cross in us. Right? We are to make the afflictions of Christ real for the people by the afflictions we experience in offering him to them and living the life of love that he loved. So in other words, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that they're no longer visible. They're not visible. Jesus has ascended and is seated in session to the right hand of the Father. We don't see him suffering. We don't see his wounds, right? We don't see any of that. His wounds are no longer visible world. He's gone out of the world, and so his afflictions are not directly visible. But they are, right? He has ascended to the Father. He's seated to the right hand, but Christ's afflictions are seen in how his people, the church, suffer and suffer with faith. So the Apostle Paul is demonstrating to the world the blessedness of Christ-likeness. And that Christ-likeness is suffering. And we suffer, and when we suffer with faith, we're showing to the world Jesus' very own sufferings. In our faithful sufferings, we make Jesus' sufferings visible. Um, this is how he says that in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always, he says, listen, always caring about in the body, in our bodies, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. 
right? So that might be seen, so that Jesus' life might be seen in us. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We're being delivered over to suffering, to, to, to death, so that Jesus can be seen in us. And that leads to the question I was asking before. All of this is, is very abstract. So what will our suffering look like? How will you and I, just as the Apostle Paul did, fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? How will you and I demonstrate to the world this aspect of Christ's likeness? Well, first, it may be going after a life of self-denial. In fact, I'm sure it is going after a life of self-denial like that of the Apostle Paul or like that of Adoniram Judson. It will be your life poured out for the gospel. You will choose, you will choose your vocation not because it's lucrative, but because it is a means for you to share Christ and to suffer for Christ. I mean, really, those of you who have not yet set out on your life's vocation if you're a Christian, you should choose your life's work because it honors God and is a way for you to suffer for his name. That's what you should do. Piper would say, don't waste your life, right? I would say, suffer for Jesus. And if you have an opportunity to uh, choose your life's work, well, don't choose something that is vain. Don't choose something because it makes you wealthy. Right? Don't choose something because it just pays the bills. Right? Choose something that, that honors God. That may, that may, or some work that um, causes you to suffer for his name. That may be the pastorate, that may be missionary work, that may be law enforcement, that may be uh, working ultrasounds, right? That may be... Uh, learning to be a constitutional lawyer because you see uh, there may be some battles that need to be fought or it may be being a teacher it may be being a doctor and working on bodies but you must remember that it is sub-christian to choose a vocation simply because it pays well it's sub-christian God has given you talents, and he expects you to use those talents for his glory, even and especially if that means fulfilling what is lacking in Christ's suffering by your own suffering. Second, you demonstrate Christ's sufferings to the world. Your demonstration of Christ's sufferings to the world will always be this. Suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Right? Our obedience to God over against what our gut wants us to do will be this suffering. And the suffering there will come from two directions. First, our mind will be screaming at us to give in. Eat, drink, be merry. Fulfill your passions, right? Your lusts. Give in to that. That's the only way you know, the devil says, for you to be happy. It's the only way. That's the only way to make it through this miserable life. It's to eat, drink, and be merry. Look at porn. Get drunk. Right? Fight. Hit her. Nag him. 
Don't take responsibility for your family. Don't lead. You know, just, just live your life with, with Nike's, Nike's little motto, just do it, right? And the suffering will come when we say no to all of that. I will not fulfill my flesh's desires. I will not listen to that master. I am not under obligation to that master. I will suffer now for doing what is right. I will suffer in my own mind. I will suffer in my ego. I will suffer, I will suffer in my flesh. Also, there will always be from those who are surprised, there will be suffering that comes from those who are surprised that you are making such efforts to glorify God. Right? When they see it, they will hate it. They will mock you. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, the, the book of 1 Peter 4 puts it this way. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, of lusts, of drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But, but, what does he say next? But, God's going to judge them. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. Another form of suffering that will demonstrate Christ's afflictions to the world is to swim against the current of our culture, right? To swim against the current. To demonstrate a fear of God through, um, through our obedience is to demonstrate the fear of God Jesus had on the cross, is there really any better way to, to say to the world, I live for Jesus, than this? Swimming against the current of our culture makes us terribly uncomfortable, right? Often because we've made peace with so many of the, We've just, when you swim in a sea of unrighteousness, you take on the characteristics of unrighteousness. We make peace with our sins, we don't stop to think through our conventions and why we think the way we think, right? We've given ourselves over to effeminacy. We've given ourselves over to homosexuality, to euthanasia, to abortion, to greed, to feminism, to egalitarianism, right? To Marxism, to socialism. And, and we swim in a sea teeming with those sins and it's easy for us to just go along with the current, to let it take us, right? It's hard to fight. It's hard to fight against the current. But that is not to embrace the kind of suffering that demonstrates the world Jesus' own perfect obedience to the Father. He was swimming against the current of God's wrath. The easiest way to determine whether or not you have made compromises with our culture, whether or not we've, we've chosen culture, man's word over God's word, is to find all those places in scripture that make us cringe and uncomfortable. Or put it this way, would I be comfortable sharing this passage at the Thanksgiving meal when all of my family members who may or may not know Jesus are there? 
It's precisely at those points where we need to be faithful. We cringe when we read scripture says about homosexuality. We cringe when we read what scripture says about men being heads of their homes and wives submitting. We cringe when scripture says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. Right? We cringe when we read uh, what, what scripture says about the love of money. We cringe when we read that Jesus will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. We cringe when we read what it says about not loving God if we don't love our brothers and sisters in the church. We also cringe when we read about what it says about suffering, right? That those who are going to be faithful in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Again, examine yourself. When was the last time your conscience was bound to the word of God in such a way that you knew obedience would be costly, that it was, would be painful, right? It would lead to suffering. Has your conscience ever been bound to the word of God in that way? Has it ever been bound to the word of God in that way? Where you knew you couldn't do that because God's word said no to you? Or have you always just followed the lust of your flesh? Have you always, actually there are two stages to it. If we don't want to obey God, what we do is convince ourselves that our flesh is right and then we follow our flesh. Right? Where is it in your life where you are saying, God, I will follow your will as you have taught in your word even if I die, even if it hurts, even if this begins Long conflicts that last through the rest of my life. And where God makes you faithful, you will be then, in that suffering, you will be then witnessing to Christ's sufferings. That's where your witness will come from. Many of you can't talk yourself out of a paper bag. But your witness will come by faithfulness in your sufferings. That will speak more powerfully than you trying to limp through some apologetics, right? That's how I feel, right? Until I start thinking about the way I haven't suffered. And then I think, okay, maybe I should just speak. Where God makes you faithful in your sufferings, you will be demonstrating Christ's glorious afflictions to all those around you. Right, and, and that will be how you accomplish your witness. Even prior to his glorious work on the cross, Jesus Christ was a man well acquainted with sufferings. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised. People hid their faces from him. He bore our griefs, which was no walk in the park. He, he carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Right? Suffering for his name in this life is to joyfully accept, get this, your partnership with Jesus. It's to joyfully accept your partnership with God. It is to follow in his train. It is to go about the world as Jesus did, not considering it uh, his home. Living for Christ is to willingly embrace suffering. It is to deny the flesh and to fight to kill it. It is to swim against the current of our own culture, it is to be the odd one in every situation. 
I mean, we should all get together and laugh about this. You'll never believe what situation I was in at work and what I had to say and what the re response was. <laughs> it is to be the ethical one when everybody else is cutting corners. Right? It is to be the honest one when every, everybody else is covering up, um, is, is covering their tails by lying. It is to give up fortune and comforts and your body. I particularly think of the women in order to be fruitful and multiply and fill your house with children. That is to swim against the current. It is to keep the Sabbath, right, and not make others work for you by going out to eat on Sundays. That is to swim against the current, right? It is to say no to careers that would be more about your vanity, like opera, <laughs> than it is about God's glory, right? Right? It is to leave the, the party when people begin getting drunk and getting high. Ultimately, it is to suffer the worst kind of persecution without forsaking Jesus Christ. It is a life where obedience to God is your greatest joy, whatever it costs you, whatever suffering it brings. That obedience to God is your, your joy. That's your happiness. One final quote here from a book I found great encouragement from in the last couple of months. This is, this is called God's Light on Dark Clouds by Theodore Kyler, C-U-Y-L-E-R. I don't know. How would I say that? Coiler? Kyler. He's Dutch, but he's Presbyterian. He was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City during the mid-19th century into the early 20th century. And the weird thing about the book is he, he quotes both Charles Spurgeon and Charles Finney in a positive light. I don't know what to make of that. It's hard for me to compute, but he did. Um, probably because he lived in New York City. I don't know. But here's one section of that book that I found helpful in what we're considering today. He says, God's people are never so exalted as when they are brought low. Never so enriched as when they are emptied. They're never so advanced as when they are set back by adversity. Never so near the crown as when under the cross. One of the sweetest enjoyments of heaven will be to review our, our own experiences under this law of compensations and to see how often affliction worked out for us the exceeding weight of glory. There is a great want in all God's people who have never had the education of sharp trial. There's so many graces that can only be pricked into us by the puncture of suffering and so many lessons that can only be learned through tears that when God leaves a Christian without any trials, he really leaves him to a terrible danger. His heart, unplowed by discipline, will be very apt to run to the tears of selfishness and worldliness and pride. In a musical instrument, there are some keys that must be touched in order to evoke its fullest melodies. God is a wonderful organist who knows just what heart chord to strike. Right? That's the glory of Christians as we follow in the train of a suffering Savior. And I would add to what, what Kyler says, we are never so Christ-like as when we suffer with faith. 
Suffering is the path God has put us on. And so let's be encouraged that our elder brother showed us how to walk that path. Right? And in our walking in it, we will show forth what is lacking in Christ's suffering. Suffering with faith will be our most powerful witness. And so every day, today, is your opportunity to witness with power by suffering through the things you're afflicted with, with faith in Jesus Christ, with joy. Amen?